we left off with me ending things with someone I have now retroactively put on a pedestal and dealing with some lingering regrets and frustration with my own maybe avoidant relationship patterns. Now, as someone who studied psychology and has a natural curiosity and compassion for the way that our minds work, I was a huge hypocrite when it came to therapy. I would be the first person to encourage you to talk more about your feelings with me or someone professional. Yet I had never actually gone myself. I thought that my own obsession precluded me and I was basically saving myself and everyone else lots of time and money. But in truth, I was just privileged. I had never been, you know, hit with something so challenging that I couldn't snap out of it. But there was this one time, that breakup that I mentioned, I would get this anxiety when I would go out in public. And at this time, I was pretty hardened to my own needs and feelings. So I thought I was fine because I was still going to work. I was working out a lot. I was making super fun plans and drinking and going out with my friends and posting on Instagram a lot. It was fine on the outside, which was really important to me. But what I actually needed to do was address my mental health. And I could have really used the support and the exercise that I'll talk about today. But when I look back at those memories, I see past the filters to someone who was just kind of fake and numb, pretty empty on the inside of all of those photos. Great photos, though. I'm Riley, and you're listening to Everything But Love, a story about the year I spent falling in love or trying to figure out how. Listen in on the uncomfortable questions I ask myself and others about what it means to be truly ready for love and at peace in its pursuit. So I thought I'd been heartbroken before. And like those times, I would just get over it with time. But since I didn't really have any experience with social anxiety like this before, I obviously couldn't really recognize the moments that I should have asked for help. And it was actually months later and this feeling was still not going away. And I knew it was months because I was actually counting days on a calendar. I would look ahead and go, okay, you know, week eight is coming up. It's definitely going to be gone by then. And then I'd look at it and go, okay, week 10. Okay, maybe week 12. And all of that counting just made me feel more ashamed and embarrassed that I still was this upset. And one day I remember I actually cried in my cubicle in front of someone that I worked with. And that just woke me up because these feelings kind of finally entered the realm of affecting my public life. So it's time to do something about it. And I remembered that we had access to this kind of email counseling service at work. And I remember vaguely describing what was going on. And funny enough, instead of focusing on the social anxiety, the binge drinking, or the excessive working out and weight loss, I told them that I was concerned that I just wasn't capable of a successful relationship and that I was worried there might be something wrong with me. I remember the response. They had pointed out that. I had evidence in my life of a number of positive relationships where I was able to maintain connections with 
friends and family and even strangers. So I was definitely capable of depth and intimacy. And I walked away thinking, you know what? I suppose that's true. Maybe this just feels hopeless versus me being hopeless. But what we didn't unearth in that email chain was that being emotionally raw doesn't necessarily mean that you are emotionally available. And being emotionally available means that you don't condemn yourself for having needs and feelings. And both of those things are impossible when you don't feel safe to express yourself. And all of that wisdom never would have landed those years ago. Because while someone listening now might think that I have to be somewhat emotionally intelligent, it wasn't until more recently when I was telling a friend about the guy in episode five that she suggested I meet with a somatic therapist, which is someone who helps you connect your mind and your body, which I couldn't believe people paid for. Like someone is just going to help me feel. Come on. But she obviously knew something that I didn't, which was that you can be really great at intellectualizing your feelings, talking about them, analyzing them. And at the same time, you can also avoid actually feeling them. And who knew that feelings are meant to be felt? So I was skeptical, but I was open. And after a few sessions, I did feel more connected to myself and stronger and more confident. I'd learned about something called resourcing, which is when you look or draw energy from something, either a physical thing like a cozy blanket or a symbolic thing like a memory of your favorite place or person. And these things can actually bring you real feelings of safety and groundedness. And this is a practice that we should all have because we're able to access the best versions of ourselves when we aren't acting out of a place of fear or dysregulated emotions. I actually learned that I did something like this when I was a kid. because I was explaining to my therapist that when I remember feeling bullied in school, I would daydream about bringing a pet mountain lion to school. I know, I, I don't know why. But in the daydream, all the kids, you know, they wouldn't mess with me because I had a mountain lion as a pet. And they said that this was called resourcing. You know, I was drawing strength from this mountain lion. And as someone who regularly asks her therapist for homework, I felt like little me got an A. But the most valuable thing that they taught me was to identify what it feels like when you're connected to your body and also what it feels like when you're disconnected. Because that gave me the space to actually calm down those parts of me that were over-functioning or anxious or stressed. And from that calm place, I was actually able to start looking at and working through some of those really big, scary feelings that I shared in the last episode that I think were causing me to kind of run early from a potential relationship. So all in all, we're a big fan of somatic therapy now. And you should also go pay someone to help you feel your feelings. So alongside this, you know, back to basics, healing and feeling, I was trying to revise my vision for what I wanted because I thought that, you know, maybe the idea that I had about what was perfect for me 
is outgrown or potentially I was a little bit afraid of asking for more. So I wanted to address that fear. You know, what do I really want if I'm being bold enough to like dream big? And why don't I think I have that or can have that if I'm being honest enough to explore? And in one of the To Be Magnetic workshops that I was doing, I learned about something called expanders. It's this idea that our brains like to see to believe that something is possible. Think of them like role models or inspiration that expand our conscious and subconscious beliefs about what's possible for us. The more similar an expander is to you, the easier it is for you to believe that whatever trajectory they're on is also possible for you too. And on top of that neuroplasticity reason, I think it's just really good practice to surround yourself with examples of the love that you actually want, especially when you know, media can kind of inundate us with scandal and gossip. And a lot of that is in relationships ending. But I'm sure there are just as many, probably more examples of loving moments that we could stand to highlight a lot more. So I looked for my own couple goals and I asked for some examples from you too. Oh my God. Beyonce and Jay-Z is their power couple, and I would do anything to be Beyonce. I am Beyonce always. <laughs> I look at my grandparents, who I think are the most in-love elderly couple I've ever met in my life, and they still go on adventures. They still love to travel. They still love to go even out for dinner with friends or have drinks and host meals and or sit there by themselves and watch a movie and listen to music but they're excited about everything that they do together. And what they don't do together, they're excited to tell each other about right away. They reminisce about memories that they've had throughout their life together, but they're still so excited to make more. And that's something that I want to find. And that's, I think, the kind of love that I hope everybody finds is somebody to have fun with for the rest of your life. A couple that's been married for a long time and still loves each other. <laughs> but that real authentic uh, trust, like it's just this innate um, kind of agreement or understanding between two people. Like it's just, it's just this effortless kind of ease that they have between each other. Yeah, I think that that is just so beautiful and you can kind of tell like right away if, if a couple has that or not. That's, that's just the best. I think the only couple that we should compare ourselves to is to the couple that we were yesterday because we're all different individuals and when we come together we form like a, an even more complex unity. So I think the, the recipe and the, my couple goals and our couple goals have always been to make each other better and help each other grow and taking the time to talk about and align our interests and values together in a way to form like a common goal and big picture that we can both strive to achieve while working on ourselves. And that to me with a little bit of luck humor, respect, kindness, empathy, and of course love, hopefully will create a relationship that one day I can sit with my grandchildren and look at their grandmother and be like, yeah, we did good. 
There were definitely some famous super couples that came to mind when I was thinking about these couple goals. But the inspiration for this episode title actually came from a real couple I'd met named Mario and Juliet. I met them on a trip to Argentina that, funny enough, had me running into my very real first mountain lion a few days earlier. We had all hiked up to the same mountain refugio in El Chelten, and my friends and I spent the weekend in this quiet off-grid cabin at the foot of a glacier with this couple. And the weather in the mountains is pretty intense, so we ended up spending a lot of time together just around a fire talking in very broken Spanglish Google translations. And my friend actually asked them, you know, what the secret was to their very obviously happy marriage. And you'd think out of all people, I, the person who's making a podcast about love, would remember what they said. But as soon as they told me their names, I think I just immediately thought, thank you for a future episode title. That's amazing. And then I stopped paying attention. However, the way that they treated each other, let's just say, was louder than words. Because what I remember was just this adoration. This is a couple that had been married for 20 plus years with kids that were my age. And I remember seeing them greet each other first thing in the morning. We were all sleeping in, you know, these bunk beds. And Juliet had, I think, slept in a little bit. And her husband was already awake downstairs. So we got to see this, you know, kind of first thing in the morning moment. And when they met, they just hugged like a real loving hug that seemed to just say how grateful they were to see each other that morning and hold each other and to watch them so genuinely loving towards each other was just a gift to all of us and something that I still think about. Anyways, these are all great stories, but as I do, I make a bit of a homework task out of this for myself. So what I did was I wrote down each of these couples that I had kind of collected as expanders and I made a column for each one, a column for the relationship itself, and then a column for each of the partners in the relationship. And then I wrote down what I liked and noticed about them. So what were each of these partners like individually? And what kinds of things did I assume or perceive that their relationship was like? I did this for five or so couples. And a lot of these people were, you know, famous or um, like social media couples. So yes, while I don't truly understand the inner workings of their relationship and who knows, you know, this is all just what they show online. It's really more, I think, about your perception about what you love about these people, because I'm clearly recognizing something I believe to be true, regardless of whether I can fact check it. And let's be honest, social media opens a window into people's lives, real or not, that you know, you just may not have access to with couples in your own life. All this to say, if you try this yourself, I don't think you should um, take real couples, you know, as a, as a limitation for this exercise. And then the most important part, which is after writing about each of the partners and relationships, I looked for what they all had in common. The partnerships were calm and confident and loving in a way that wasn't afraid to show it. 
but they also each had a really strong individual identity. And I just had this sense that they all really worked hard on the relationship with themselves and also with each other. And then the male partners all seemed to have this sense of integrity, were strong and loving and devoted and just treated their wives and girlfriends with this kind of regal energy and respect. No pranking war couples made my list. No offense. And when I looked at the men in these partnerships, I tried to picture if I felt like I would be compatible with someone like that. And my answer was not really. And when I tried to understand why that was, I kind of found it in the way that I didn't associate with the female partners in these relationships. So on to what they all had in common. I noticed some superficial things like For some reason, most of them had really beautiful, long, dark hair. But more meaningful were things that I don't know that I would ever really freely admire or notice about someone, but they all seem to have this kind of soft and emotionally expressive and artistically creative. And those are all words that at the time I never would have used to describe myself. I never thought I was creative. And definitely never thought I was emotionally expressive. I was a capital A achiever that liked to think a lot. But in this moment, I felt like I had two choices in front of me. I could decide that, you know, these relationships, which clearly I admire a lot, just won't be the relationship for me. It's meant for someone else who doesn't have my kind of personality. Or I could choose to challenge that belief. And experiment with trying to become the person I felt was worthy of the partner and the relationship that I wanted, even if it felt uncomfortable or not natural to me. So what do you think I did? I started to learn about creativity. I just spent time brainstorming, you know, things I could do to try to experiment with expressing myself in this new kind of way. And lo and behold, the podcast emerged. Oh, and I obviously dyed my hair. This is my first podcast and creative project. So if you want to follow along and hear some behind the scenes details on what's gone into creating this, you can join my Substack, or I'll send out an email with each episode. If you'd like to send me your own love note, you can find me on Instagram at everything but love. And of course, the old leave a review and subscribe feels like a virtual hug. So if you're in the mood to spread some love, do that. I'm Riley and you've been listening to Everything But Love. Till next time.